All right, well, today we wrap up our five-part sermon series titled Pursuing Greatness. And we've looked at what greatness looks like in our lives uh, in light of a number of different things. Greatness in light of God's glory. We are made in his image, and therefore uh, greatness for us is found in relation to divinity. Um, Greatness in light of God's kingdom. Greatness in light of eternity. How do our lives measure up as short as they are against eternity? And um, and then last week, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at greatness in light of brokenness. The world is full of brokenness. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're broken people. What has God done for that? How are we to find greatness in a broken world? If you miss any of those messages, they're all online. You can listen to them there. You can podcast um, if you like. Um, today, we're looking at greatness in light of the Great Commission. And we find ourselves at the very end of Matthew's Gospel in chapter 28. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 20. Our passage comes uh, at the end, and, and what we see is Christ has risen from the grave. And he had told his disciples to go on ahead of him, and he would meet them in Galilee. And they're there just as, as he asked. And Jesus appears to them, and he says to them and, and to us, um, a great commission. He gives them a great commission to go and make disciples. Um, now, for the salespeople in the room, when you hear the word great commission, you're probably thinking of, of something else. Uh, but the great commission that Jesus is talking about, uh, the commission in the sense of, of an order or a command that his disciples are to follow or to go into the world and make disciples. Jesus is saying, I'm going to be leaving soon. I'm leaving you some marching orders. And here's what they are. This morning, as we read and meditate upon this great commission, let's let's ask ourselves, has this great commission captured your heart? Do you seek to live it out in your lives? Do you seek to find your greatness in your life in this great commission? Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us the living word, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and this written word that speaks to him about him and speaks to us that we may know and be discipled by him. We pray in this hour that your spirit would give life to these words and to my words and that we would grow in an understanding of what you are calling us to be, that we may find greatness in this great commission, we pray. Amen. Well, three years after her Honda Civic was stolen, Amanda Pogany received a phone call from the police station in Queens, and and the police escorted her down to a recently busted chop shop, and they brought her before what was once her rather plain, nondescript Honda Civic. And quoting her own words, she now saw that it had tinted windows, and these nice, fancy hubcaps. The police officer asked her, is your car a stick shift? No? Well, it is now. (laughs) 
She went on to say, I almost feel bad that I can't even appreciate the level to which this car is capable of. But my husband is very excited to try it out. <laughs> See, the tinted windows and the wheels were just the beginning. Under the hood, there was a, a brand new VTEC racing engine and a new transmission. And the whole interior had been redone with a brand new, nice interior. She was so thrilled with what her car had become that she rushed down to the local news agency so that she could tell her story to the world. And in the, in the TV interview, you could see the, the shock and the disbelief commingled with, with the joy. Her boring car that was one lost, lost to her and gone now suddenly appears completely renovated and as a race-ready sports car. Amanda Pogany, in, in this story, she illustrates to us not only the emotion, but the application of our passage here this morning. If you think having your car stolen is bad, imagine watching your Lord and Savior crucified on a cross. And if you think receiving back your car as a pristine, high-performance race car is good, imagine seeing Jesus Christ, the resurrected, transformed, glorious one, speaking to you, saying, greetings, do not be afraid. Like Amanda, who couldn't help but call up the local news station to get his, her story out. How, how more natural would it be for us, and is it for us, and inevitable for us, to joyfully share the good news about Jesus to those around us? But this is often not the case. While going out and proclaiming this good news of what Christ has done for us, while it is the most logical response to what we've experienced, um, we seldom do. We're kind of like the original audience that Matthew wrote to. We, we avoid the Great Commission, not because it's illogical, but because it's, it's hard. It's hard to stand for an exclusive truth claim in a pluralistic society. Plus we're, we're, plus, we're a little bit sheepish about calling others into discipleship with Christ, especially since it is such a hard and, and difficult allegiance that he calls us to. And frankly, I think when we examine our own hearts, we just don't have the love inside, the same kind of love that our Savior has for sinners. And coupled with that, do we not at times become content with our own salvation and therefore we lack a conviction to minister to others? Whatever our hang-ups are, we need Christ to speak to us this morning afresh. We need to hear his words to his disciples as being spoken to us. And we need to hear him. And when we hear him, we will hear him say that you have been commissioned with a great commission. Go and make disciples. We're going to divide our time into three areas. First, we're going to look at the great person, then the great purpose, and the great provision. Great person, purpose, and provision. First, the great person. Do you know who Warren Buffett is? I think most of you guys know who Warren Buffett is. Uh, Warren Buffett is perhaps one of the greatest, if not the greatest, investor of our time. And he's also a great philanthropist. He's worth billions, and he's given away billions. Imagine if Warren Buffett were to come to you and say, you know, I'm getting along in age and I'm going to be t departing this world fairly soon. And here's what I've done. I've made plans for you to take over for me. Everything's taken care of. 
You might feel inadequate, but I've made it so it'll work for you. Would you not respond like with in humility and thankfulness and joy? And would you not, uh, you know, hear those words and, and desire to, to be obedient and to obey and to do what Warren Buffett calls you to do? Of course you would. How much more so us? When we have been commissioned by Christ. What we must see this morning is that Jesus Christ is the greatest man who ever lived. He's fully God and fully man. His goodness is beyond measure. His care for your soul is beyond comparison. It is he who speaks to us and he is the one who commissions us to go and make disciples. It's the Great Commission. Now, the Great Commission isn't great just because a great person gives it to us. But the Great Commission is great because it points people to the great person, Jesus Christ. I want us to look a little more fully at that. You see, when you're inviting someone, when you're, when you're, when you're going out and making disciples, you're really inviting someone to come and know a person. Uh, the great Savior of the world and the King of this world who reigns over all. That's what we see here in our passage. There's two things I want us to see. Jesus is great in this regard. He is the one who's, who he, he is who he's promised to be. He's our resurrected Savior. We see in verses 16 and 17 that we read, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some of these first disciples were there and they heard about Jesus for the first time when John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's the Savior right there. And no doubt they were all scratching their heads like, OK, so that's him. But how does it all work out? And, and even John began to doubt and be confused. Right. If you remember the story, John the Baptist is in jail, about to have his head cut off. And he sends his disciples to go talk to Jesus disciples. And, and they ask, all right, Jesus, are you really the one? Are you the one? And we know from the Gospels that Jesus' own disciples, on three times Jesus told him, I'm going to Jerusalem and suffer and die and rise again. And they just didn't quite get it, did they? In verse 16, we read that even after he rose from the dead, there were some who doubted. Now, the word in the Greek uh, that we translate doubted, it doesn't denote a settled unbelief like that that, that an atheist might have. This is more along the lines of uncertainty that causes hesitation to all his confused and uncertain followers Jesus shows himself to them he shows them that he is the one he promised to be although they couldn't quite figure out how it was going to happen after the cross and after the resurrection we come to see that Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death that we deserve so that by faith in him he becomes our savior My friends, when we take part in the Great Commission and we introduce people to Jesus Christ, there will be some who doubt. They will have questions. But that's okay. If you introduce them to Christ, he is the one who will reveal himself to them. You're you're revealing people not to a philosophy, but a person. One who cares about their souls. So Jesus is who he promised to be, our resurrected Savior, But he's also the person we need him to be, our king. The world that we live in is the world in which God had originally given mankind dominion 
Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Create culture. Create cities. Uh, go and, and do it all for my glory. Do it in goodness and beauty and purity. But as we know, that's all come undone. It's in a shambles. The world is not as, as God has intended it to be. It's all gone amok. There is evil and injustice in every society. And if we look into our own hearts, we see that there is evil and injustice in our own hearts. The world is in desperate need of a divine ruler, and that's who we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus talks of this in verse 18. He says, And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. Think about that. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. If you primarily see Jesus as just a good teacher, well then, these words of his just disqualified him from even teaching kindergarten. See, these are the words of a a madman or a, a lunatic. All authority in heaven on earth is mine? Now, if I were to say that, those of you who know me, Mark's just being a goofball, right? Not so with Jesus. He's not kidding around, nor is he deluded. Jesus isn't just an ordinary man. He's the God-man. Jesus is God incarnate, God in the flesh. He came not just to bring salvation for your soul, but to win a victory over sin and death and to establish his kingdom on earth. A kingdom that has come and is spreading, but a kingdom that is not yet fully come, a kingdom that we are waiting upon. One day Christ will return, and all evil and all injustice on the world will be forever gone including all evil and injustice in our human hearts. Now, how does Christ rule us? Well, he doesn't rule us by force. He doesn't rule us by giving us a a list of rules. Christ rules over us in our hearts. He takes over. He renovates. Jesus promised that he would send the Holy Spirit after he was ascended. The Holy Spirit of Christ dwells in us. In every believer, God promised that he would renovate our hearts and give us new hearts, hearts that no longer beat for self, but beat for God and his glory. If you're in Christ, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He's given you a new heart. When we share the gospel with other people, what we're ultimately sharing with them is an invitation to have the gracious yet powerful king of all creation rule in their hearts to change them. You know, your boss doesn't need an anger management class. Maybe he does. (laughs) Your boss doesn't need an anger management class. Your boss needs a new heart given by Christ. That, That bully at your school doesn't need more time in detention. That bully needs a new heart. That it needs Christ to rule within. That dictator doesn't need another round of sanctions to force his hand. He needs a heart transplant. He needs Christ in his grace and love to reach in and take out that heart of stone and and plant it at a redeemed heart that beats for God and for his glory and beats for goodness and righteousness and justice. That's what we need. We need King Jesus to rule in the hearts of humanity. That is how his kingdom spreads. 
Christian, I know the word evangelism can make you uncomfortable. I know perhaps it brings images to your mind of awkward or uncomfortable conversations, you know, uh, friends who leave you picking up the bill. Right. Um, but understand this. If you've been given the treasure of knowing Christ and experiencing the transformation in your heart that he gives you, then you, you have the solution for all the hurt and all the sorrow in this world. You have the good news that the world needs to hear. And guess what? The word evangelism comes from the Greek word euangelion, which is the noun which means gospel or good news. And so the verb to evangelize means what? Go and good news people. You've been tasked with the assignment of bringing good news to people. You're not bringing them a rainy forecast, right? As my friend John Yenchko says, Jesus is not the booty prize, right? (laughs) He's the answer to all the world's troubles and problems. Christian, you know him. He's implanted in you. We're to good news our neighbors with this hope that we share. And, And sharing the gospel really is you not being clever and philosophical and having all the right answers. The, sharing the gospel is you introducing people to the person, Jesus. You remember the Samaritan woman at the well? She was an outcast in her own village because of her sinful life. She's there at the midtime of day. Jesus is there at the well, too. Jesus didn't give her any philosophy or rules to fix her life. That's how we are. You need to act better. You need to stop doing that. No, what did Jesus offer her? He offered her himself. If you knew who I am, you would ask for me to come into your life. After they hemmed and hawed a little bit, she came to to see Christ as he is the Savior. And you know what she did? She ran back into her village to those very same people who held her in contempt and disgust. And she grabbed them and said, come. See a man who's told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She just wanted to show them Jesus. Let me introduce you to him. Let me good news you with what I just heard. (laughs) The great commission that we share as Christians is a calling to bring people into the presence of Christ so that he may graciously transform them. My friends, it's not just you and me who needs a Savior. Every single human being on earth needs a Savior. You know, there's roughly three million people who live on Long Island, who call Long Island home. There's over 40,000 who live in the Hamptons year-round who call Hamptons their home. Let me remind you of the vision of our church. The vision of Grace Presbyterian Church is to see Long Island awakened to the glory of Jesus Christ. And this comes about as we pray, yes, but as we become more transformed by the gospel and as we embrace this great commission to know Christ and to make him known. You know, part of our vision, if you know, is our goal is to plant 13 churches on Long Island, going from here all the way back into, into, into the city. But we plan to do that by 2030. We don't have a whole lot of time left. That's a lot. Long Island is one of the most unchurched, ungospeled places in America. I estimate maybe 2 to 3% of the people who live on Long Island have this hope that we share. 
Our vision is to start churches. If you drive, if you drive into the city, next time you drive in the city, don't take the LIE. Take a side road. Go, go up north or go take the, take a southern route and go through all these little villages and towns and, and pray as you go along the way. Our desire is to reach them by planting churches. Some of you here will be a part of that. Some of you will be a part of a team that envisions where we can plant our first, second, and third churches. Part of you will be part of a prayer team. All of us, I hope, will be giving generously. I estimate forty to $70,000 a year is what it will cost for us to plant churches on Long Island. This is, this, is, um, this is us getting excited about the Great Commission. It's part of what we're called to do, to love the Hamptons well and also to spread the gospel of God's grace throughout Long Island. That's the great person. Now for the great purpose. You know, great athletes always play with a great purpose. There's a purpose that captures their hearts and pulls them on to greatness. Now, professional sports is full of athletes, unfortunately, that the the great purpose is really their own glory. You perhaps know of some teams that have really good athletes, but it's really all about them. It's not much about teamwork. Usually those teams don't do all that well. They don't win championships. It's the team that is unified around one great purpose that is able to win championships. For us as Christians, and for the whole world of that matter, greatness for us is found in the great purpose of God. And God's great purpose is not to neglect this world, to redeem it and to restore it. Here's what we must see. I hope you understand this. God is on the move. God is a missionary. He's the ultimate missionary. He's the one who came up with the idea of the gospel, okay? <laughs> it's his idea. If you've, if you've become a Christian, it's because God has moved into this world and opened your eyes to the glory of Jesus. God is a missionary God. God is a God who goes. God is a God of good news for a broken world. Jesus talked about this in John chapter 3, where he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. He gave that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then check this out. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God sent his son into the world. One day the Trinity was having a conversation and God said, now's the time, son, go. And he went into the world. Go and save the world and make disciples. Seven times in John's gospel, Jesus points out that God, the father, sent him. The last time is in John 21, right after the resurrection. Here's what Jesus says. Peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Our model for what Christ calls us to do is Christ himself. Our model for what for what we're being asked to do is something that's already been tried and true. God himself is the one who's modeled this for us. Go into the world. God is a God who goes. If you're a Christian, it's because God has done that. And because we've experienced that, we are people now who go and make disciples. He's not asking us to do anything he hasn't already done. Nobody likes the boss who goes and tells us to do something that they would never do. Jesus has done this. This is the the purpose we see in verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Jesus says we are to 
go. Now, some people read this as world missions, and I'm not going to argue with you. I agree. And the, the, the trajectory of what Jesus is asking here is that all of the world, all the people groups of all the nations would come to experience this good news. God's design is that as we are obedient, the world would know. But Jesus wasn't asking his disciples in this context to leave Jerusalem and fly to Papua New Guinea, right? Those of you who know Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, no, first you're to, you're to do this in Jerusalem and Judea, right in your neighborhood. Then you're to go to Samaria. And then you're to spread it out to the ends of the known world. That's Jesus' plan. It's his purpose is that the world would come to know. Now, if you're that disciples, one of those disciples hearing that, you would feel a little overwhelmed, wouldn't you? But the true purpose of God is that this would be multiple generations of Christians, disciples making disciples, reaching the ends of the earth. What does this mean for you to go? Well, it means your, your Savior King has commissioned you to go. Go to your work. Go to your school. Go to your Kiwanis club. Go to your book club. Go to your mom and dad. Go to your brothers and sisters. And yes, if called, go overseas. Go to Papua New Guinea. Go to Gaza. Go to Taipei. Go wherever the Spirit of God calls you to go. But we need to go somewhere. Now, go is the first verb, but it's actually a participle in the Greek. I don't know if that means anything to you. But um, the first true verb is an imperative, make disciples. That's the main thrust here. It's, it, yes, go, but... When, make disciples. That's Jesus' point. Let's linger on that. Discipleship was common in the ancient world. In the Greco-Roman world, philosophers and, and teachers traveled and they, they brought around and they, disciples came and, and they were taught by them. We also see in the rabbinical schools in Jewish culture, there were mentors who had disciples. And so in some way, it's similar what Jesus has done, but it's also different. See, in the Greco-Roman world, in the rabbinical schools, the, the students would go and seek out their their mentor, the one that they wanted to, to uh, study under. Here, what we see is Jesus is the one who went out. He went out and gathered in people that he chose to be his disciples. And then what he did is he poured his life into them for three years. Jesus, Jesus poured out all of his life into his disciples. Jesus made disciples and he called them to go out and make disciples. And that's our purpose as well. Now, what does it mean to make disciples? Well, there's two more participles. You see them, you see them in there? Uh, baptizing and teaching. That's the way we were to go about it. Baptizing is to bring people into the church. This is evangelism and conversion, what have you. Um, teaching, this is the training up and making people who've come to Christ know Christ and grow in maturity. Jesus says, baptize them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. What he's getting at here is, is, is this is, you're baptizing them into the, to the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. You're, you're baptizing them into this covenant uh, God. You're baptizing them into this body of people who are affiliated and who have an allegiance to God and to Christ and to the Holy Spirit. You're baptizing them into the body of Christ. This is evangelism. This is you and me introducing people to Christ. Evangelism isn't necessarily as hard as we like to make it. It's very relational. It's, done, it's to be done in humility. 
It's, an, it's not about building up walls. Sometimes our evangelism is about, well, you believe that, but well, we don't believe that. All right, so yeah, you're out. Sorry. You know, a lot of times Christians build walls. When you look in Scripture, how is evangelism done? Building bridges. Paul goes to Athens. He walks around. He looks and he observes the different idols they have and even is able to quote some of their poets. He builds bridges. He says, you believe this and you believe that. That's great. Now, let's learn a little bit more. That's what disciple making, that's what evangelism is. It's about building bridges into people's lives and and bringing Christ across with you to those people. One of the things we do here at at Grace Church is, is we have a thing called Christianity Explored. It's a wonderful class where people are able to explore Christ. Much like the way in which the Samaritan woman said, hey, come. Come and see for yourself if he really is the Christ. That's what Christianity Explored is. It, it's you inviting your neighbor and saying, hey, why don't you come? On your own terms, investigate Christ in this class. It's really a good class. I think you'll like it. But if you don't, you don't, have to, you don't have to stick around. You don't want to. You know what? A number of you here are now followers of Christ because of that class. Because someone in, invited you to that class. We're, we're starting that class up again in January. So be praying for people that you can invite and, and going out and meeting with them and building and strengthening those relationships. But the Great Commission is more than just evangelism. It's more than just people getting people in the door. And this is where many Christians and churches fall short. We make converts, but not disciples. Jesus says in verse 20 that making disciples involves teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Those three years where I poured my life into you, those 1,095 meals I shared with you, do the math, those three years where I patiently taught you about me and my kingdom, those years where I showed you how my father operated, those three years where I modeled to you mercy and grace, those three years where I showed you many miracles, those three years where you heard me talk nonstop about the kingdom, those three years where you saw others mock and ridicule me, Those three years, I I taught you so much, tangible and intangible. Imagine this. Imagine if the disciples were never discipled. (laughs) What if Jesus went out, and we have the early gospel, he just went out and he just gathered in some, he went around and found some guys fishing, he said, hey, what's your name? Great, James, John, Zebedee's, huh? Awesome. Awesome. I'll be back in three years, um, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get you, and then we're going to do something really cool. All right? Does that sound good? Oh, well, yeah. What did you say your name was again? I mean, could you imagine that? Imagine then, you know, Jesus comes back. He goes to the cross without any disciples, and he rose, and he come back, and he said, Hey, guys, it's me again. Now go make disciples. Tell me how odd that would be. You probably never thought of that before, have you? It would be completely odd. How could the disciples tell the world about a man they hardly knew? They would have never have seen how patient he was with little children. Or how patient he, he was and is with them. They never would have heard the Sermon on the Mount. They would never have seen Jesus stoop down to wash their feet and to model sacrificial love. Imagine if Jesus never made disciples. Now, Christian, 
In the same way, it is completely odd for Jesus not to make disciples. It is completely odd for you not to be involved in discipleship in some sort of way. Either being discipled or making disciples or both. Not just converts who understand the cross, but disciples who know Christ and make him known. You know, some of you here, you're just new to the faith, right? This is probably the first time you heard about the Great Commission, all right? Some of you here are immature for other reasons. Here's what you need to know. You need to be discipled. Christianity and your, and your relationship with Jesus isn't, a, isn't about being a lone ranger. It's not something to be done all on your own. Coming to church for one hour a week on a Sunday is not discipleship. It's part of it. But here's what mature Christians have come to realize. They've come to realize their own hardness of their own heart, their own willingness to deceive even themselves, and, and, and our ongoing need of having someone who's more mature in the faith guide them along in their walk with Christ. If you're here this morning and you think you're doing quite well as a Christian without this, guess what? That very thought is an indication that you need to be discipled. And so maybe you're here and you're like, yeah, that sounds like like something I need. I, I want to be discipled. But who will disciple me? Guess what? We have men and women in this church right now who are ready and willing to disciple you, as well as we have people who are being prepared. Within the next year, they will be ready to disciple you. Do this. You have a connection card. Just write on there, my name is so-and-so. I want to be discipled. Turn it in. We'll make that happen for you. Maybe you're, maybe you're like, you know what, I've enjoyed being discipled and, and I feel like I'm mature and I want to be obedient to this great commission. I feel like I could be a, a discipler. Guess what? Write your name on there. Tell us that. We have a class for you to go through that at the end of this class you will be trained and ready to make disciples. But we're all to be a part of this, right? Consider how odd it would be if Jesus never discipled his disciples. And his plan for his disciples is to make disciples, not just converts. So that's the great commission and the great person. Really quickly, it won't take long, the great provision. You know, even if your heart's been softened to, to, to this great commission, um, it can be kind of scary. It's a daunting task, right, <laughs> to do what Christ calls us to do. It's one of the reasons why... Christians don't commit to the work. It's scary. It's hard. We don't have confidence. But what I hope you see this morning is that the Great Commission comes with a great provision. We see it at the end of verse 20. And the last words that Jesus says, the last words recorded in Matthew's gospel, that is, he says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, understand this. He's not just talking to his disciples. I'm with you disciples to the end of the age. He would have said, and I am with you until the day you die. Right. But he didn't say that. He says, I will be with you until the end of the age. What's the age? It's the age we're living in now, the age in which the kingdom has come, but not yet fully come. Uh, Jesus has come into this world and he will come again. That's the age we live in. We're in the age of redemption. We're in the age of the Great Commission and we're the people of the Great Commission. So that's what we're to be doing. And Jesus promises that throughout this age, his people will have him present 
not physically, but just as powerfully through the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence and brings to the believer the real true reality of the life of Jesus in our lives. Christ, the Spirit of Christ powerfully works in the body of Christ so that the body of Christ would embody Christ in this world that needs Christ. This should give us confidence. To step out, knowing that Christ is with us always to the end of this age. This great provision allows us to labor with power and confidence. You know, all of my daughters have uh, taken gymnastics classes. And if you go to see a gymnastics uh, instruction, you see the gym. It's like a lot of activity going on. And you always see is there's like some, some gymnast trying to do something like really hard. And then there's the instructors there spotting them. Not necessarily touching them, but just ready there, present, ever present uh, if they should fall. Ever present to help them finish out that back handspring on a balance beam, right? And, and, and in a similar way, that's what Jesus is promising us, his presence in our lives. And, and, and knowing that he's here, it, it gives us confidence to do things we thought we couldn't do and the power to do it. Christ is always here with us. You know what one thing the Spirit of Christ will do for you? The Spirit of Christ gives God's people the same love that Christ has for others around us. If you love somebody with a sacrificial love and you're willing to go out and, and give up your life so that they can experience the goodness of Christ, well, that's Christ in you. That's what we're talking about. That's the, the Holy Spirit, his presence. And the, and the Spirit of Christ working in you gives you the words to say when you don't even know what to say. The Spirit of Christ reminds us that our worth and our identity isn't wrapped up in how well we do this. Our identity isn't wrapped up in whether someone receives Christ or not. And Christ even empowers us to be mentors. It's hard work to disciple somebody. You give of yourself physically and emotionally. It's draining. It's taxing. Christ is there to empower you during this task. And guess what? When you fail... And you will fail. Christ is there with you always to the end of the age to remind you of the grace that you have in him already. This morning we've seen that God is on a mission, a mission of redemption and, and restoration and renewal. His kingdom has come, but it's not come in its fullness. And until then, we have the great commission of Christ to go and make disciples. If you're here today and you don't yet consider yourself a follower of Christ, I invite you to hear his call upon your life. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. He is either a liar or a lunatic, but I don't see that lining up with his character. Or he really is who he says he is. The Son of God, the, the Lord of Lords, and the one who rules and reigns over all creation. The proper response for you is to bend the knee and to, to receive him and come before him and acknowledge your need for him. For those of you who call themselves Christians, I hope you hear his call upon you more clearly. Be a disciple who makes disciples. Know Christ and make him known to others. Consider this amazing truth. If you were to be discipled by someone for three years, and then after those three years, you became a discipler who discipled someone, and then that person, too, did the same thing for three years, discipled someone, do you know that after ten years three of which you spent being discipled, 
there would be four people who are now disciples because of your work. After 16 years, it's 16. It's, it's math. It's exponential in nature. After 19 years, 32. And here it really begins to compound. After 31 years, the result of your work and the work of others would mean 512 people who are mature and following Christ. If you're lucky to do it 40 years, 4,096 disciples. I want to close by reminding you of the vision of Grace Presbyterian Church. It's to see Long Island awakened to the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what Long Island needs. Christ and his glory, his forgiveness, and his gracious, gentle rule upon the lives of the people who call Long Island home. God is on a mission here in the Hamptons. I believe he is. He's working through us and through our church. May we be on mission with him. And as we're on mission with him, may we rejoice that Christ is always with us to the end of this age. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the great missionary. You are the one who loves this world. If we love this world the way in which you love this world, it's only because you've given us a new heart that beats like yours. How foolish we are not to respond with joy and gratitude and and to bring this message of your love and redemption to this world. I pray that we would be strengthened this morning, that we would be energized and enlightened. I pray that uh, your great purpose for us as a church would come to reality uh, as your spirit works in us individually and as a church. We thank you, Jesus, that we're not introducing people to a philosophy, but we introduce them to you, our Savior and our great King. Amen.